And the youngest gang member I've personally met was nine years old here in the streets of L.A. Wow. The 44 founders of the city of L.A., I believe about 20 of them were fugitives wow. from other states. <laughs> Did you, would you ever witness any drive-by shootings yourself? I witnessed a few shootings. Yeah. You know, I got shot at a couple of times. Wow. Yeah. Probably the most famous gang ever. It's called MS-13. The first generation of MS-13 kids went to John Burroughs Junior High School with me. Is that right? Yep. Hello and welcome to Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray. And today we are back in Santa Monica, beautiful LA. The sun is shining. And today we talk gangs. Really interesting podcast, this one. I sit down with Alex Alonzo. Alex grew up in mid-city attending schools that had a close-up view of LA's gang culture in the late 70s and 80s when it was at its all-time high. Alex Alonzo founded streetgangs.com in 1995 when he was an undergraduate in environmental studies. He went on to study street gangs and is now a professor where he teaches and educates about gangs, their culture, and also, most importantly, dispelling the myths that we've come to believe as a result of the Hollywood model. He is an expert witness who was called in to testify at trials involving gang crime, and he has an incredible podcast called The Gangster's Chronicle, which is just launched on iTunes. Now, this is a little bit of a niche podcast, I'll give you that, but if you've ever been interested in understanding gang life, gang culture in LA, because obviously this has you know, been broadcast all over the world, we've seen the movies, we've seen the documentaries, but often it's very different from the truth. If you'd like to know the truth about gang culture in LA, if you'd like to understand more, then listen up. This is going to be an interesting podcast for you. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com well ladies and gentlemen it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast Alex Alonzo, man, thank you for coming down. Hey, thanks for having Especially me. Especially on a Sunday here in beautiful Santa Monica. I know, I love some. You know, I actually went to school here in Santa Monica. Is that right? Yeah, I went to school right up the street from here. Wow, so you, yeah. this is a little bit of a hometown for you, is it? Yeah, I mean, I spent like uh, two years here. And then I actually used to work at Santa Monica College, so I was a professor there for about two or three years. So yeah, Santa Monica is like another home for me. You've got like an incredibly interesting story, and I, I, I don't, to be honest, I don't know where to start. <laughs> But if you were to give like the, 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 the 30-second kind of elevator speech about who Alex Alonso is and what you do, what would be that rap sheet? I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I know one thing. I was never even supposed to be in Los Angeles. Uh, I was never even supposed to live here. I ended up here just on a fluke between our, my parents separating, and I ended up in Los Angeles. And really, if I would have never came to Los Angeles this career that I have would have never even materialized. Yeah, right. So I always think about, like, I wasn't even supposed to be here, but I end up coming to Los Angeles as, like, a 11- or 12-year-old kid when my parents separated, and 
I was already living in a whole nother state, you know. Where were you born? Yeah, I was born in New York. Yeah, so right. I was living in New York State. And just on a fluke, I was coming home from school one day and I saw my father sitting on the stoop. And my mother already had us. They already separated. My mother had all of uh, myself and, and my siblings. And um, just happened to bump into my dad on a fluke. And my dad said, do you want to stay with your mom or do you want to come with me? And I just said, I want to be with you. And if it wasn't for that chance meeting, um, he said, well, I'm, I'm moving to California. So I'm leaving New York. And I said, well, I want to come with you. And just by that chance meeting, I ended up in Los Angeles. And being in Los Angeles kind of exposed me to all the stuff that I'm studying now, that I'm researching now, that some people say I became an expert on. So uh, I always kind of reflect on on that chance meeting with my mm. father because if it wasn't for that, I would have never even been here in the first place to even know what I know. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you come to, to LA 11, 12 years of age? You, yes. You settle yourself in Santa Monica? You, you no, we lived in uh, South LA. Okay. And uh, I didn't get to Santa Monica until my college years, but no, we lived in South LA, uh, just a, a nice little area, and um, just lived a regular life, and went to school every day, and started meeting kids, and it was like a brand new life for me. I didn't have, I didn't know anyone here. Yeah, didn't have any family here. Um, just except my dad had a sister here, but you know, all my family was in New York. I had two brothers and two sisters that I got separated from, so I didn't have my my siblings around anymore. So it was just a whole new life. And uh, I adjusted. It took me a couple of years to adjust and adapt, but eventually I just, just started to enjoy Los Angeles. I enjoyed the weather. Uh, you know, I come from a place where there's winter, you know. Nine months of the year. <laughs> yeah, for like almost half the year. Yeah. Um, you know, it snowed and it's winter, and to come out here and, and have this beautiful weather all year round was a plus. And I just ended up meeting new kids, meeting new people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, because it's a different demographic in Los Angeles at the time when I moved here than it was where I was at. So, And also, my family's originally from Puerto Rico, so I was exposed to a lot of Puerto Rican culture when I was a kid. There are no Puerto Ricans in Los Angeles, California. It's mostly Mexicans and Central Americans. So I learned a new culture and I became friends with people that I never, I never heard of a, a Mexican before. Yeah, right. I never heard of someone from El Salvador. So when I came here, I was meeting kids from different backgrounds. So, you know, it was a little bit of a culture shock, but I adapted. And so at what point did you start to realize that you had an interest in, in, in the gang world? Were I, you introduced to the gang world like as a, as a gang member initially at first? Or no, how did I had, that progress? I had interest in, in the gang world before I even came to Los Angeles. Yeah, right. Because my family, my, my father and his brother, they were in the streets when, I, when they were young. And they were involved in, they didn't call them gangs back then. They were groups or clubs. But I was always fascinated looking at my father's photo album, old pictures of you know a group of Puerto Rican kids that was fighting against the Irish in the Bronx, New York, or they were fighting against Italians. It was always about ethnicity and race, and the conflict always had to do with that. So I was always interested in that and fascinated by that. But when I came to L.A., I started to learn about a different type of street culture. So it wasn't brand new to me. It was just something that uh, it was an extension of something that I was already interested in. Yeah, right. I had never heard of Bloods or Crips before. Okay. I had never heard of, of Sudanos or uh, the Mexican gangs. So it was all new to me, uh, but I had already had developed that interest from conversations with my father and looking at right. old pictures. And when you moved to L.A., it was like the, the gang scene a lot more prevalent here than it was in, in New York State where you grew up? Correct. Um, when I was a little kid in the 70s, the gangs in New York kind of had faded away. 
And for a time, it, it really wasn't any street gangs. Um, now it's changed, but it was more about hip hop. Hip hop had took over New York in the 1970s. So people really weren't into the street gang culture that much. They were converting themselves into rappers, DJs, graffiti artists, and things of that sort. So when I came to LA in the early 80s, it was definitely a, a scene that was different from New York. The gang scene was strong. Hip hop didn't seem to have an impact on the gang culture in Los Angeles as it did in New York. Right. And so what was your, your, your earliest memory of being exposed to gang culture here in LA? Oh, I would say it was the seventh grade. My, um, my first year in what we call junior high school, they call it now middle school, uh, my seventh grade at John Burroughs Junior High School, I uh, started to meet kids that were claiming these different sets and dressing a certain type of way. And th- those kids always fascinated me. And so I would always go hang out with these kids from different areas and uh, develop strong bonds with a lot of these people. And some of them I'm friends with to this day. Wow. Yeah, so it's been like, um, whew, it's been over 30 years since and I you, went you to that school. you were developing these relationships with um, gang members from different sets? Correct. Right. Um, Mexi- so you were like Switzerland, were you? <laughs> I guess you could say that. What, they, f- they speak multiple languages there. <laughs> well, Switzerland's like, uh, like that's like, um, uh, it's where they have no, they have no uh, yeah. affinity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a neutral place. That's kind of like the way I was during those middle school, junior high school years, because I was just fascinated with the culture. I always wanted to know why, even at a young age, why people were drawn to certain types of group identity. So, yeah, um, there was a lot of Mexican kids. In fact, when I went to John Burroughs in the seventh grade, it was the very, very beginning of a gang that became probably the most famous gang ever. It's called MS-13. Yeah, right. MS-13, the, very, the first generation of MS-13 kids went to John Burroughs Junior High School with me. Is that right? Yeah, because MS-13 started around 1979, 1980. I'm in the seventh grade in 1982, right? and I'm meeting these kids. But it really wasn't the way the media portrays MS-13 or the way law enforcement portrays it. It's just a bunch of kids just hanging out, maybe getting high, smoking a little something and drinking. And, um, you know, I became friends with a lot of the first generation Mara Salvatrucha kids. Wow. Because their neighborhood, their original neighborhood was off of uh, a street called Pico and let's say um, like Pico and actually Pico Union. Pico Union was their first community. Uh, they spread out to different parts of L.A., but Pico Union is not that far from the school that I was attending. So I met a lot of those kids during those years. How did you find yourself navigating between all these different gangs without becoming affiliated? I mean, it's not that difficult. Uh, people make it seem like, you know, if, if you're friends with this guy, then you can't be friends with this other guy. Um, there are a lot of people that have been doing this for years, uh, Mm. to this. I I even interview gang members that are able to navigate with gang members from rival sets because they had developed a friendship first before they became gang members. Mm. So if you have two guys from gang A and gang B and those two gangs hate each other, but those two guys know each other from kindergarten, first grade, second grade, they're not going to get involved in the conflict. They're going to still stay friends for the most part, you right. know, there are times where there's exceptions to that. So it's not as complicated as outsiders may make as it Hollywood seem. makes it seem. Man, Hollywood has done a, a major injustice on L.A. gang culture. They've done a major injustice on what it's like living here. And, and it really, it's bothersome to me because 
when I'm in the courts, I work in the courts, we're working on some serious stuff. People's lives are on the lines when it comes to trials. And most of the jurors learn about gangs from movies. Mm. So we have to deal with these preconceived ideas that jurors have about gangs that come from the movies. So yeah, it's a Hollywood theory. Um, most of what the general public knows about gangs comes from the media, Hollywood news. So yeah, um, it's kind of tough dealing with that stuff in court. But yeah, um, it's not that hard to have friends from g- gangs on different sides. What's one of the biggest myths you, you, you would you like as a part of your mission you want to dispel about the gang culture here in LA? Oh man, one of the biggest myths is that the gang culture here in Los Angeles is not as violent as the media makes it out to be. Right. It is, um, look, listen to this. There's about 40,000 gang members in the city of Los Angeles. There's about 80,000 in the county of Los Angeles. Now, 80,000 gang members. Uh, last year, there was roughly 200 and, I think, 260 homicides. Of those 260, half of those were defined as gang-related. I say that in quotes because I don't even know where law enforcement define how they define how it. They define, yeah. But let's accept that definition. About half of those homicides were gang related. So that means roughly about let's just say 150 were gang related. Now we're talking about 150 homicides from a population of over 40,000 people. So if you do the numbers on that, the rate of homicide is extremely low. Now, if the gang member population was only you know a uh, thousand, mm. and we have 100 homicides, that that changes the the statistics, it changes the dynamic of how we would look at gangs. But we got 40,000 documented in the city responsible for 100 or 100 plus homicides every year. And when you look at that, comparing different cities across the country, Los Angeles's homicide rate and their, their violence rate is really low. It's one of the lowest for a large city when mm. you compare it to Detroit, New Orleans, Washington, D.C. So even though we got the most popular gang culture, probably in the world, Wow, we have one of the lowest homicide rates and we have one of the lowest violent crime rates in the country. So go figure. That's staggering. Like, yeah. That's just not something you would expect. No, because you would think a city that has all these Crips and Bloods, plus with all these um, the Mexican gangs, would have one of the highest homicide rates in the country. Uh, we're not even in the top 10. Wow. You know? Is there a, because you hear a lot about Chicago, I'm not sure if you, are you familiar much with the Chicago scene? Yes. Okay, so you hear a lot about Chicago, you know, being the, the murder capital of the USA. Um, is there a significant difference in the culture between the gang life in Chicago as there is to LA? So, well, I would say you have to look at that um, year by year. It right. changes. Now, there was a time in Los Angeles when it was crazy. Yeah, okay. I would say from like 1987 to 1992, it was one of the most violent years the years of LA's ever had. Right. Um, but Chicago, I would say, from like 2010 to 2015, was really going through something incredibly tremendous in terms of homicides. So um, now I would say Chicago has a higher homicide rate than Los Angeles does. They have um, roughly like 400, 500 homicides a year, and their city is about a million less than Los Angeles. We have 4 million people in the city of Los Angeles. Chicago has roughly like 2.5 million. I'm sure somebody will correct me on that. But nevertheless, they have more homicides than we do in a city with less people. So they obviously have a higher homicide rate. And the gangs there in Chicago are, you know what, I'm not even going to go there and say that because I haven't studied it. But we often hear that the gangs are the reason for the violence in a particular city. I don't know if that's the case in Chicago, Mm. but in terms of listening to the news, 
that's what they make it out to be. But coming back to L.A., if we have, let's say, 260 homicides a year and roughly half of those are gang related, that means the other half are non gang related. So that means we have we have a problem with our gangs. Of course, we're not going to you know, downplay that. But then we also have another problem with people who are not gang members mm. that are committing the same amount of homicides. So I don't know if it's like that in Chicago. So I don't want to say that Chicago's yeah. problem is gang related. Yeah. But I know LA, if you got rid of gangs in L.A., you still have a lot of homicides. Yeah. You know, so there's still other things going on in L.A. So at what point, and so you're going through middle school, you're starting to get all these connections going on. At what point did you realize you wanted to dedicate your life to this? Well, once I got to uh, the University of Southern California, yeah. I was sitting there in class and I was talking to some students, some, some class that had nothing to do with gangs, and someone had already knew, I was making a gang map, that's what it was, I was doing a gang map, and I was sharing it with someone, and they said, oh, are you taking um, Malcolm Klein's gang class here at USC? And I said, no, I never even heard of Malcolm Klein, I didn't even know there was a gang class. So I immediately looked it up, I sat in on his class just to see what it was about, and I was amazed. I was like, wow, they're actually teaching a gang class here at the university that I'm at, and I had never known anything about it. And then, shortly thereafter, someone asked me about Professor James Diego Vigil out of the anthropology department. He had a gang class, and he's at USC. So these two professors, who were internationally renowned professors in their field, were both teaching at SC. I got to know both of these professors extremely well over the years, but once I got to meet them and see what they were doing, I kind of fell in love with studying street gangs because I didn't know that there was an academic population, an academic community yeah. that was devoted and committed to you know learning about gangs and, and showing the world what gangs were really about. And that happened in my uh, junior year at USC. And again, did you start to see there was, a, there was some significant differences between what the media was portraying and what the research was actually putting out? Absolutely. It yeah. was incredible. Like The research... And what law enforcement puts out are diametrically opposed. Um, you know, that's where I learned that most gang members are not violent. You know, if you listen to the police, every gang member is violent. Every gang member is a shooter. Everyone in the gang is a killer. But think about it statistically. If, every, if all 40,000 gang members were killers, we would have far more homicides than 100 or 150 every year in Los Angeles, right? Yeah. But most of us aren't thinking that way. Yeah. You know, we just listen to what law enforcement says. We um, watch their conference, their press conferences. We listen to their talking points, and we just kind of accept it as as fact. But once you go into the research, once you start to meet other professors, other colleagues of yours, and they start sharing you their findings in different cities, then you start realizing, wow. Uh, even myself, I had preconceived notions of what gangs were before I got to academia and before I started studying it, you know, more rigorously. I kind of bought into some of the the theories. And the myths, but yes, yeah, it's, it's like um, what Professor uh, David Brotherton uh, from England says: um, you have police science, and then you have the truth. Mm. And police science is just something that doesn't follow any sort of protocols. They're not following any sorts of methodologies where people can go repeat that work. It's all anecdotal. It's all anecdotal. Yeah, I'm 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 sorry to say it. I don't like to bash the police. Yeah, but whenever they talk about street gangs, it's all anecdotal, and most of what they're saying is inaccurate. Wow. And how do you find what's the gang's reception when it comes to? Because I'm going to assume the gangs have an opinion about the research that's being done. Are they are they quite 
open and transparent when it comes to the research and your inquiry? Because obviously you guys aren't affiliated with the police, so it's kind of like I'm going to assume it's a different conversation if you're having a chat with a gang member versus if uh, LAPD is. Well, it's kind of difficult to answer that question uh, because you said are the gangs have an issue with it as if there's like one sort of monolithic viewpoint yeah. that the gang has. The gang is like, I was watching football before I came over here today. They were talking about this wide receiver named Antonio Brown. He's been kind of like a, a diva. You know, he's asked for everything, but he's like the best the, the world has ever seen when it comes to wide receiving. He says certain things that people shouldn't say. He's very controversial, but he doesn't speak for all football players. Uh, his, even mm-hmm. whole, his, his teammates don't all agree with him. And that's sort of the way gangs are. Um, we don't sit there and say, um, you know, everyone on the, in the NFL or everyone who plays football acts like Antonio Brown. But that's the way gangs are often portrayed. If you got mm-hmm. one guy acting a particular way, our mind starts to think that must be the way the gang thinks. So to answer your question, how do gangs think about the research? I mean, there's 40,000 different personalities. Yeah, that's a um, good. There are some gang members who don't even know about the research. Yeah. There are others that love the research, and there are some that are confused with the research. So it's, it's very personality-driven. And we often just paint the gang with a broad brush as if they all act the same, they all think the same, they all have the same opinion. But once you dive into a gang with 100 members, you start to see there's 100 different ways of thinking. This guy's crazy. This guy's normal. This guy wants to fight all the time. This guy wants to break up the fights. Um, this guy never wants to fight. You know, you, you have this whole um, just diversity of, of personalities. Like and, you would, in, I guess, in any community. Exactly. That's yeah. what I would say. A gang is just an extension of, of the real community. world. Yeah. You know, but we often label these gangs as if that, like they're robotic. And your question kind of, kind of had that inherently in it. Yeah. You know, what is the, how does the gang think about the research? Well, depends who you are. It, exactly. Depends who you are. Uh, I'm gonna, uh, what I'm really fascinated about is how they organize themselves. Because, you know, humans inevitably, you know, when we collaborate together, we we organize, we create structures, hierarchy, authority. What do you see inside the gang life, inside the gang world that creates the order that appears to be there? Because when I look in from what I've heard, there appears to be a lot of structure and order inside a gang, in certain gangs anyway. Well, or is that again one of those things? It's inherent. Depends on the gang that you're looking at. I think law enforcement wants us to believe that street gangs, and we're talking about because there's different levels of gangs. You got motorcycle gangs. Okay. You got organized crime, which are considered gangs. Right. And then you have street gangs, uh, which is what I study the most. Street gangs. And the street gangs would be the most disorganized of all levels of, I guess, gang culture. Right. I would say that the most organized would be like the Italian mafia, uh, they're extremely organized. They have like specific ranks. They actually have someone that's in charge who they call the, um, the head. You know, like uh, John Gotti was one, probably the most popular head of a crime family in the mafia history. But street gangs aren't organized in that manner. They, aren't, they don't have that structure. But some street gangs, maybe with the Latino street gangs here in L.A., have a little bit more organizational structure because they're tied into the prisons. Hispanic gangs in Los Angeles are directly tied into the prison gangs, where black gangs and other non-Hispanic gangs are not connected to the prison system. And in the prison, they tend to be a little bit more structured because they got more time. Yeah. They got more. Um, they think about this stuff more often. So there is a little bit of structure when it comes to the Latino gangs, but the other gangs 
Um, you don't see that type of organizational structure. There's not those hierarchies. There's not leaders. There's not elected people. Uh, but I hear in Chicago, at least in the 60s and 70s, they used to appoint different people in leadership positions in the, in the street gangs in Chicago. Yeah, right. I'm not sure if it's the same way now. So the, most of the gangs in LA, they don't have like a, a hierarchical system at the top where they've got a set of leaders and people who are, you know, calling the shots, so to speak. Negative. Um, wow. It, does, it just doesn't exist. Now you have what's Again, called, that's the Hollywood stereotype, right? It is. It absolutely is. And every Hollywood movie has to have a leader. Yeah. You know, every Hollywood movie has to show that somebody's in control. But especially with the black gangs, you do not see that at all. But you do have what's called like your OGs that are at the top. But you have right. multiple OGs. Then you have people underneath the OGs. You have, and it's all separated by like age cohorts. And at the very bottom, you have what's called YGs, your youngsters. And those are teenagers. Those are people that are between the ages of like, let's say, even preteens. They go back to, uh, I mean, the youngest gang member I've personally met was nine years old. Here in the streets of LA. Wow. So you go, you know, from let's say nine to 14 is your first generation of gang members. Those are YGs. And then you have, let's say, 15 to 18, and then 18 to 25. And then once you get over 25, you get to the more serious levels of gang membership. And then I would say over 40 or over 50, you got some of your OGs. Is that what? Classifies an OG if you're if you're over forty over fifty. There's really no definition, no definition to it. I'm just giving yeah. you that off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have never really put a lot of thought into it because it also depends on how old the gang is. Mm, you might okay. have a gang that just started in 1980, so it's pretty young. So you, an OG, it would be the very first members of that gang. Um, you might have a gang that started in 2000. So the first generation of that gang will be the OGs. Then you have gangs that have been around for 50 years. So OG status is not necessarily tied into age per se. Gotcha. And based on the history of gangs in, in, in LA, like what was the first gang to be documented here in LA? Uh, well, hmm. I would say that some of the first gangs documented, documented in the city of LA were some of the gangs off of the Los Angeles River in the... 1890s, and wow. the um, and some of those gangs are actually still around. Uh, back in the 1890s, a lot of the gangs were multi-ethnic. Right. So we had a lot of Russians in the Boyle Heights, East LA area. We had Russians. Um, we had a lot of Eastern European. Of course, we had Italians that immigrated here in the late 1890s. So those were some of the first gangs in Los Angeles where a bunch of the Eastern European and European immigrants that came to Los Angeles. But some of those gangs continued, and then they became Hispanic. Um, so I would say one of the oldest gangs we have in L.A. right now is a gang called, um, I'd say Dogtown. Dogtown is, right now, it's based out of the William Mead Housing Projects on Main Street in downtown Los Angeles. And there are references to that Dogtown gang in the Los Angeles Times around like 1895. So wow, that gang is a uh, hundred and what, hundred and twenty years old, oh, over hundred and twenty years oh, old. Wow, yeah, and that, it's still there. That's a lot of history. It's a lot of history. Um, I actually did a video on my channel of the the ten oldest Hispanic gangs in L.A. And if I recall it correctly, I have Dogtown as the oldest one. Wow. Oldest still active. Okay. You know, there are some other gangs that were that probably go back further. Than Dogtown, but they're no longer. Active. But they're not active anymore. Yeah. They kind of died off because gang culture in the United States, at least, starts like in the 1830s on the East Coast, and then it moves west 
to to the West, to California. So we we have to have had gangs in Los Angeles area prior to the 1890s. Mm. For example, um, you know the city was founded in 1781 by and half of the city's founders were bandits. They were escaping, you know, being they were fugitives. So the 44 founders of the city of LA, I believe about 20 of them were fugitives wow. from other states. <laughs> so 1781, you probably yeah. had gangs in LA. Yeah. But in terms of what's active now, I would say the Dogtown is the oldest active gang in Los Angeles. What's the ethnic mix of Dogtown? Now it's predominantly Hispanic, yeah. mostly uh, Mexicans and Central Americans. Right. The, 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 I guess the most widely well-known, you know, I, I guess some people would say notorious gangs that are known around the world are the Bloods and the Crips. When did the Bloods and the Crips come onto the gang scene and, and, and how did they develop and evolve? What was the, the genesis of, of that, that rivalry with both of those gangs? Well, the Crips came out first. Right. And it was started by a guy named Raymond Washington, who was about maybe uh, 15 years old at the time. And he had got kicked out of another gang called the Avenues around 1969. And he just decided, well, you know, I'm going to create my own gang. So in 1969, here in Los Angeles, he created the Crips. And he had an idea of spreading it throughout the city. He didn't want it to just be in his neighborhood, but he wanted to take this Crip ideology to different parts of L.A., and he started to spread it throughout the city. This is the age of 15. Yeah, at the age of 15. Wow. So he was born in 1953, so uh, that would have made him uh, 15, 68, 16, and 69. So they say 69 was really the when it got going, so he would have been 16 by 1969. Uh, so by the time you get to 70 and 71, now you have Crip factions in lots of different parts of L.A. Uh, you basically had what was called the East Side Crips that Raymond started. Then you had the West Side Crips, and then you had the Compton Crips. But immediately thereafter, each of those three Crip sets started to break off and, and come into smaller different Crip gangs. And that, that was the start of it. And then the gangs that did not want to convert to Crips. Now, at that time, I don't I wouldn't call them gangs, but there were groups of kids in different parts of LA that Raymond went to and said, "You guys are going to be Crips, you guys are going to be Crips, you guys are going to be Crips." And not everyone agreed. The ones that didn't agree, they fought back and they maintained their own identity. Right. So, the gangs that maintained their own identity eventually years later, we're talking about maybe 76, 77, come out with this blood identity. Mm. And the history on how it started is a little sketchy. No one really, everyone has different versions of how the blood started. But we do know that it was started in response to the Crip presence. It was started in response to the dominance of the Crips spreading all over the city. And for those few groups that didn't want to become Crips, like the Brims was a group that existed in 1969 in Los Angeles. They didn't want to become Crips. Neither did uh, the Pyrus that decided they didn't want to be Crips. And the Denver Lanes didn't want to become Crips. All of these groups that I'm mentioning eventually become part of what's known as the Blood Alliance. And I'm going to say around 1977, 1978, that Blood Alliance is pretty much solidified. But how it got there, there's like a big gap in the history of how that Blood Alliance came about. And the 70s and 80s is what you were referring to before. That was the, the bloodiest time in the, in the gang the late 80s, I would say. The late say. 80s, was it? Yeah. If you take it decade by decade, the 80s was not just gangs, just the whole population, the city of LA, even the, just non-gang members were violent. Wow. Um, the 80s was the most violent decade, I would say, from almost every city in the country. New York City, 
Uh, the 80s was the most violent. Why do you think that was? Oh, man, it, it's kind of hard to pinpoint. And a lot of people thought it was tied into the economics, economics yeah. and recessions and unemployment rates and things of that sort. But then after we saw the recession of 2008 and we didn't really see an increase in crime, we didn't see an increase in uh, violence that we were expecting, then some of the theories started to change. But, you know, deindustrialization started in the 1980s. A lot of the jobs that were in these large cities started to go abroad. So there was a big unemployment rate. So I'm not really sure if it's tied to unemployment. Uh, that's a really tricky thing to connect. Uh, what causes violence to increase and decrease? Law enforcement always wants to take take the credit when it goes down, yeah. <laughs> but they never take the blame when it goes yeah. up. Yeah. But the 80s were the most violent for most cities. But if you want to just pick specific years... I always go to 87 to like 93. Now, I told you earlier that we had about 250 to 280 homicides last year. Mm-hmm. So we've been averaging for the last decade less than 300 homicides a year in Los Angeles. If I take you back to 87 to 92, 93, we were averaging 1,000 a year. Wow. With a population a million uh, less. less than what it is now. So just imagine what that was like. And I grew up during those years in LA. LA wow. that, uh, so you were on the streets during that period? I was, I was in um, high school. Right. I was in high school. And did you, get, were there, did you witness any of this violence? Witnessed yourself? it all. Wow. I witnessed it all firsthand. And uh, I had friends that were victims to the violence. Uh, it's the first time that I started to meet no kids that were getting murdered. You know, No kids that are no longer here anymore. You're in a classroom with them in a homeroom one day. And then the next day, you find out they got shot and killed. So that was the 80s, wow. the late 80s. So uh, we're and that not, was a regular thing? It was a regular thing. So imagine this, 365 days in a year, you have 1,000 homicides that year. That's what, three a day mm. on average? You know, every day, murders mm. every day. And they're mostly confined to South LA, even though the city's large. Yeah. We have the San Fernando Valley, which is half of the city in terms of geography. Yeah. But 75% of those homicides are happening on the south side of the city, wow. you know, so, and that's where I lived, and yeah. most people grew up on that side. So, yeah, it was a really violent period. There were times where I was walking home from school literally scared, literally scared, because you'll see a car pull up, and you don't know if they're going to shoot at a, at a group of kids for no reason. Sometimes, you know, a lot of innocent kids got killed during these times, too. Wow. Did you, did you ever witness any drive-by shootings yourself? I witnessed a few shootings. Yeah. You know, I got shot at a couple of times. Wow. Yeah. Is that just wrong place, wrong time? Yeah. Hard to say. Um, you don't know if it's, let's say you get into a fight in school mm. on Monday. And then Friday, you're walking down the street and you're getting shot at. You don't know if that fight at, on Monday yeah. has to do with why you're getting shot at on Friday. You know, most of the time you don't know why. And you don't know who, you know. So how much of your time have you actually spent, or have you spent much of your time actually um, embedding yourself in the gangs to really understand their culture and their ideology? I used to spend a lot of time out in the field when right. I was working on my master's degree. Uh, I, I do spend a lot of time in the field now, but most of it is just doing interviews, right. documenting people, telling their stories. But when I was doing my research, I was in the field all the time. Um, it was almost an everyday thing. Yeah, right. And when you were in the field, like, what are some of the things that you've seen that made you go, wow, these people are just like everybody else. Like, these are normal people. When you get to meet their families, right. uh, most people... You, you might meet the gang member, but you're not going to meet the gang member's mom. You're not going to meet his little brother. 
you're not going to meet his aunts. And one of the things I did when I was in the field a lot was going to their homes and learn about their family and their upbringing. And then, and then you learn like some of the, the challenges that a lot of these guys had in life and the issues that they had to go through. A lot of them come from single mom homes, fathers not around. They come from the poorest parts of the city. You know, the poorest parts of Los Angeles produce the most violent gangs. So there is a tie-in into the way the economics is structured uh, in the city, the way it's laid out. You know, there are no gangs in Beverly Hills. And the, where we're at now in Santa Monica, uh, the crime rate is extremely low. There's one, there's a couple of gangs in Santa Monica, but it's in the poorest parts of Santa Monica. Believe it or not, there's a ghetto here in Santa Monica called the Pico neighborhood. And you have uh, two gangs over there. And this is like one of the most beautiful places to live in Los Angeles County is Santa Monica, but they have two gangs um, in a a poor section there. So you learn about, one of the things you also learn about is that a lot of these kids are a victim of their surroundings. They're a victim of their geography. They're a victim of where they're growing up. Um, Some of them don't choose this lifestyle. Mm. It's, It's put on them. It's forced on them. Um, so yeah, there's there's so many things you learn that you don't really get from the media, and you don't get from law enforcement. I've always been curious as to why people join gangs, and I, look, I guess I've got that assumption that could be fueled by the Hollywood perspective. But you mentioned something before, like one of the things you you, you saw is like a lot of gang members come from you know single mom or single parent homes. Um, is there a tie in there, or, or should I just ask that question from a neutral perspective and you know ask why do people join gangs? Um, that's a hard answer, question to answer yeah. because there are multiple reasons. Uh, but you, the gang is looked at for a lot of kids who come from broken families as a family. Mm. It's an extended family. Um, usually the gang becomes a place you go to because you're escaping something else. So it's usually, mostly, always tied into what's going on at home. So if you're not getting along with your mom or... You're not, you don't, your father's not in your life and, or you have all this extra time to, to just do whatever you want to do because mom is working. Eventually, when you open up your door and you walk out on your porch, the first thing you're going to see is these gang members. And usually a young kid that's 10, 11, 12 will look up to these gang members. They'll look up to them because they're tough. You know, like, wow, that guy's the toughest kid on the block. Nobody messes with him. I want to be like that guy. Mm. Or, wow, he's got all the cars. He's got a nice car and all the girls seem to be following him. And I want to be like that guy. It's not necessarily they're saying, I want to be a gang member. They start to look up to guys Mm. in the community because of the problems they have in family. And then later they realize, oh, he isn't a gang. Oh, he is the gang member. So I guess that's what I need to do to get on that path. Because I want to have girls attracted to me. I want to have that car. Or I want to learn how to fight like that guy and beat people up, you know. Mm. And that all stems from home. You mentioned before when you, you, you talked about the gentleman who, what was his name? He started the Crips. Um, Raymond Washington. Raymond Washington. You said, you know, he started to spread his ideology, you know, into different places and geographies around L.A. I'm curious, apart from ethnic, ethnic, the ethnic backgrounds, what are the main things that distinguish gangs? Is it their ideology? There's really no ideology. Right. Um, like if... If you ask someone what is the Crip ideology, it'd be hard to define it. Mm. Um, Because at the end of the day, a Crip and a Blood, they're the same in terms of where they grew up, their background, their experiences, 
why they joined. They all come from similar backgrounds. But, you know, there are some things about cripping that over the years separated them from other gangs. Like they adapted the color blue. You know, so if you saw guys wearing blue, you, you might be right to call them crips. Early on, they had a fashion. They used a cane. They had leather coats. They had special hats. So they had a sort of a, a way that they presented themselves. Like a dress code. Yeah, they had a little dress code. And, of course, they had a way that they spoke, uh, you know, the way they talked to each other. They used certain words. So that would, be, that would fall under the ideology. But, you know, thinking of most of the time when you talk about ideology, thinking of politics or a certain political way of thinking, it wasn't that sophisticated. It was yeah. more about fashion, the vernacular, um, and things of that sort. How have gangs evolved since, eight, let's call it, 1870 or 1890, uh, when Dogtown was first um, established? And you look at the history of gangs throughout LA and maybe the rest of the country as well. Are there any, can you look at them and go, well, they have evolved, and if so, how? Well, I would say that they've evolved as humanity has evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, can you imagine living here in the United States in 1890? Um, not a lot of weapons, not a lot of drugs, um, not a lot of, of conflict in, the, in the, this contemporary sense. So as things change, you know, drugs come into the scene, guns come into the scene. Not only is it changing society, but it's also going to change the gangs as well. So I would just say all the changes that gangs have went through would be the same changes that society as a whole went through. You know, there were a time in 1890 that the gangs didn't have weapons, except for like a knife or a bat or things of that sort. When I say weapon, I'm talking about firearms, you know, um, semi-automatic weapons, fully automatic weapons. You know, those start to come into the scene in the 1980s, and then that's when the gangs start to get them. So anytime there's a change in society, uh, gangs kind of adapt to those changes. In terms of the biggest changes now, we see uh, high-tech crimes going on. And some gang members are looking at, you know, credit cards and different types of fraud to get involved in because that has become something that society is has ventured into. Yeah, right. So most of the stuff that you see gangs doing are the things that other people in society have been doing. They just mm. kind of adapt with the society. And so what is your ultimate goal? Like with all the research and the study that you're doing and the work that you do, you've got an incredible podcast. What your podcast is called? The Gangster Chronicles. Yeah. Every Thursday we put out a new episode and it's just a conversation between myself, Reggie Wright Jr. and James McDonald. And I'm particularly interested in and history. Well, these gentlemen have some history as well that you do it with. Yeah. They, um, they were connected to Death Row Records. Yep. Reggie Wright Jr. was the head of security for Death Row Records. Uh, this is during a time when Tupac Shakur was the most popular rapper on earth. Um, he was murdered during this time in Las Vegas. And then James McDonald, my other co-host, uh, he was actually at the club when that happened, the club that they were driving to wow. called 662. So uh, these are two guys that we have conversations with every week on the podcast, and uh, we talk about history, we talk about gangs, and um, we just have really interesting conversations that a lot of people gravitate towards. And you're obviously bringing a lot more of this research mainstream to, to, to debunk a lot of these myths. Yes. But what, if, if you know that you've lived your, a good life with what you, the work that you've done, like how will you know that you've succeeded in what you do? Like what is your goal? Well, I spend a lot of time working in the courts because... It's one thing for people to just believe myths about gangs, but it's another thing when those myths can have an impact on somebody that's on trial. Mm. So um, when I'm dealing with the, the criminal justice system, which is probably some of the most important work that I do, 
Uh, I feel good when I can get juries to see that there's another way to look at this gang culture than what the police are telling you. So when we get not guilty verdicts and we get a lower lower charges, um, verdicts, um, I feel like we've accomplished something. We've gotten through the minds of 12 people mm. in the city of L.A., which is not easy to do. When, when you're on trial for murder and you get an acquittal, um, that's something to be you know, proud about. You know, the whole team, the attorneys and all the people that worked with the attorney. And most, I, I'm starting to think that a lot of these guys that are found guilty, especially gang members, it's easy to convict a gang member in court because all you have to do is say, He's a gang member. And we've, we know this because we spoke to jurors before. Jurors will admit, oh, when I heard he was a gang member, I just assumed he did it. They don't even want to hear the evidence. You know, we have a whole trial. We have evidence we want to present to you. But they already heard, oh, he's a gang member. Oh, he must be guilty. Mm. So when we can get through a jury, not guilty verdicts, you know, that's, that's something to say, wow. You know, I've, I've arrived. <laughs> and, and so what is the context where you get the opportunity to be brought in to, to, to be able to speak to jurors? Is it actually, like, are you like a special witness or do you actually, are you coaching the jury before they actually go in to sit? Like, h- how do you get involved in, in the court process? Yeah, I don't have any communication with the jury. Okay. Um, a defense attorney will get a case and the defense attorney will learn that their client is a gang member. And a smart defense attorney will bring in a consultant that understands gang culture, like an expert witness. Yeah. You know, there's expert witness for many different categories in a trial. You have ballistics experts, you got DNA experts, and most smart attorneys will hire these experts to help them along the way during mm. the trial. Um, there's gang experts now for trials. So if you have a gang member on trial for whatever case, for whatever offense, and you're an attorney, uh, you would, and, and you want to win, and you want to have success with the way you defend this, your client. You're going to bring in someone that understands gang culture, because the police are going to come in there and testify about the gang culture to help land a conviction against their client. And if you feel like the police are exaggerating or lying or misinforming the jury, you got to be able to counter that that testimony with an expert of your own. So that's where I come in. So a lot of attorneys now, uh, as soon as they get a gang member as a client, they call me up and bring me in on the case. Yeah, right. And you've, you've, you find that you're doing more and more cases now as a result of what, the work you do? Um, yeah, I, I do about 50 cases a year. Yeah, right. And um, you know, I remember when I first started off, I think my first case was in 2000, in 2000 so that was what, 19 years ago I did my first case. And that year I did two cases. Uh, now I'm getting like 50. 50. I'm getting wow. 50. And, I, and actually, I don't take all cases now. Okay. So I take 50 cases a year, but I probably get called for maybe up, up to 75 cases a year. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And what determines whether or not you'll take the case on or not? Is it time? Yeah, most of it is time and if I feel like I can be effective. Right. I'm not going to be effective in every case that's presented to me. Uh, sometimes the evidence is so overwhelming, there's nothing that I can do to help y- your client. Um, but there are cases where I feel like, oh, this guy's either innocent or the charges are trumped up. Or I read the preliminary hearing transcript, which is like a, it's a hearing that we have here before you go to trial so that you can determine whether or not there's enough evidence to go to trial. And once I read the preliminary hearing transcripts, I get to see what the cops are saying. And I'll, if I immediately see this information is incorrect, this cop is wrong, uh, I might take a case on that. Because sometimes... Believe it or not, some some of the weirdest things uh, in a trial 
that have nothing to do with the actual offense or the evidence could turn it. I remember I had a case where we disagreed about the territory of a particular gang. The territory was very important in, in the prosecution's theory because they felt that uh, it, it occurred at a particular place and that particular place represented the turf and the territory. But being a geographer, I had noticed that there was something wrong with their maps. So we're having an argument in trial about territory and turf, not about what actually happened, not about the evidence, but about the territory. And it caused them to lose the case. Hmm. Now, if they would have just focused on the evidence, if they would have just focused on on the offense, they may have won it. But they focused on something that they were going to lose. And once I can get one juror to see that this theory, the prosecution theory or the mm. police are not telling the truth about something, there's a good chance they're going to lose that case. Wow. Alex, man, this has been an enlightening conversation. I feel, I feel much... Uh I feel like this has been really beneficial for me, especially you know, growing up being interested in gangs but only ever really being exposed to the, the Hollywood perspective. If there's one thing that you would like people to remember about gangs uh, from this conversation, what would it be? Uh, not all gang members are the same. Not all gang members agree. And not all gang members are violent offenders. Mm. And if people want to find out more about you, your podcast, uh, where, can we, where can we send them? Well, you can just check me out at streetgangs.com. And you could also check me out on every social media platform, Alex Alonso101. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. And also the gangsterchroniclespodcast.com is the website for that. And we're gonna be doing a live show in the next month. I don't have a date yet, but we're we're selling tickets to to do our podcast in front of a, a live oh, audience. Wow, great, yeah. fantastic. So um, I'm letting everyone reminding everyone on, on the show every week that we'll be doing a live show real soon. We're just in the middle of trying to secure a venue. Fantastic. Alex Alonzo, thank you so much for coming to Unstoppable. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thank you, man. Wow, dude. That was this episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Cohen Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know that your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, KerwinRay.com and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.